Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How's your week been, Dave? Great. Nice, sunny, beautiful day in California. 72 degrees. Phil would have definitely seen a shadow were he in Pasadena today, as as he did on Tuesday in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I've got more to say about that. That's I, I cannot believe that possibly happened. We were in the middle of a ridiculous snowstorm on Tuesday. I know Pennsylvania gets the weather a little bit before we do, but I don't know how there was any sun in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania on Tuesday. We got 18 inches of snow on Sunday into Monday which I ended up shoveling four different times. It spread out over enough time um, to make it manageable, but the kids have been enjoying it the latter part of the week. You know, it was kind of a dry snow. So it was one of those snows that's nice to shovel, but can't really do a lot with, but now that it's warmed up later in the week, it's, it's got nice and wet and they're making snow forts and, and all the rest. So it's been good. A nice late afternoon activity. Well, keep that shovel on your porch. You've got six more weeks of it, so at least. <laughs> yeah, I know. Thanks. All right. Well, we're going to lead off with a story from earlier this week, as reported by Politico. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell reached a deal Wednesday on a power-sharing agreement for governing the upper chamber. The final agreement on the so-called organizing resolution for the evenly split Senate allows Democrats to take control of committees and comes after weeks of negotiation between the two leaders. The Senate then approved the resolution later on Wednesday. So the bottom line is you're going to get an even split on committees, but the Democrat will be the chair of each committee, which is basically what happened when this occurred back in 2001. Of course, at that point, Republicans had the upper hand because they had Dick Cheney as vice president for the tie-breaking vote. Uh, Maybe the most interesting piece of this was the discussion of the filibuster. So McConnell was early on holding out for an assurance that the filibuster wouldn't be uh, removed and didn't get that from Chuck Schumer. But there were two senators, Democratic senators, who said they were not in favor of ending the filibuster. And so McConnell took that as a win. What do you make of it, Dave? Well, it's interesting that it's named a power sharing agreement. Of course, right? There's power that's divided in government. You wonder whether uh, the uh, kind of older spirit of collegiality that you know would have been there, you know, 60, 50 years ago, uh, that many commentators said has been lost. Whether that will still be the case, right? That you, know, you get beyond uh, this this moment, so you get the Congress off. But my guess is, uh, with what lies ahead, that uh, there'll be much more power application than power sharing between the two parties. Yeah, we're already seeing a little bit of that today with the approval of the the resolution. That's the first step toward ultimately approving the Biden COVID relief package, uh, which you know, there was the effort to negotiate or to reduce the size of the package. Ten Republican senators were working on that earlier in the week. And that was rejected. And now we've got the first vote where Kamala Harris cast the tie-breaking vote to move that process forward. Let's turn now, though, to the required reading, Dave. You've got the next section of Democracy in America ready for us as we go into part two of volume one. And right on schedule, given this power-sharing agreement, uh, we move to our fourth uh, discussion of Tocqueville's Democracy in America, where he'll talk about uh, 
democracy and how it operates in the United States. Uh, and in particular, he'll talk about parties and the press and associations, which I think are very pertinent uh, for our day. So he begins this whole discussion. Uh, this is a new part of volume one. So he's moving from part one to part two by writing the following. Until now, I have examined the institutions. I have gone over the written laws. I have depicted the current forms of political society in the United States. But above all the institutions and outside all the forms resides a sovereign power, that of the people, which destroys them or modifies them at its will. It remains for me to make known the ways by which this power, the power of the people, dominant over the laws, proceeds. What are its instincts, its passions, what secret springs drive it, slow it down, or direct it in its irresistible advance? What effects its omnipotence produces and what future is in store for it? So he'll start off this discussion by saying that one can say in the United States that the people strictly govern. But the question is, well, how do they govern? And, and what are the instincts, passions, and the secret springs that, that drive the governance of the nation? And the preliminary description that Tocqueville provides is that the people are drawn from the majority. And that basically what's happening in the democratic system in the United States is that parties, he argues, constantly agitate the majority in a, an attempt to get it to support them. So the parties are attempting to get majority support. Now, they can do this in a great way, or they can do it in a small way. And this, for Tocqueville, distinguishes great parties from small parties. And here he goes back in time to the founding, and he says that at the founding, you had great parties. How does he define a great party? What I call great parties are those that are attached more to principles than to their consequences, to generalities and not to particular cases, to ideas and not to men. These parties generally have nobler features, more generous passions, more real convictions, a franker and bolder aspect than the others. Small parties later on, on the contrary, are generally without political faith, as they do not feel themselves elevated and sustained by great objects. Their character is stamped with a selfishness that shows openly in each of their acts. They always become heated in a cool way. Their language is violent, but their course is timid and uncertain. Great parties, he says, overturn society. Small ones agitate it. The former tear it apart and the latter deprave it. The first sometimes save it by shaking it up. The second always trouble it without profit. Now, at the founding, of course, you had these two great parties. They weren't officially parties, but they were sides of the um, argument on the Constitution, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. So you can see how uh, the argumentation that goes into making the case for the federal constitution and its ratification or against it is dealing with general ideas, general principles uh, of justice. Hence, it's more of a heightened conversation. It's a dangerous conversation as well, but one in which if each of those great parties pays a certain deference to the other and recognizes that the other is making a case for the common good, even though the stakes are heightened, the end consequence of that debate is also kind of a heightened or enlightened uh, conversation. Well, Tocqueville says that in his present day that he's writing, right, he's writing in the 1830s, that this is a day of small parties. Uh, the, the, the party that is now in control, the Democratic Party, 
uh, party brought into being by Thomas Jefferson that's now had 30 years of, of dominance over the American political system is one that is uh, constantly working towards these kind of immediate ends. So my question for you, Matt, uh, given that definition of great parties and small parties, would you say that the parties in the United States in the year 2021 are great or small? Yeah, it's a little bit of a difficult question because on the one hand, I think they're divided, at least in theory, by real fundamental differences. Right? In other words, I, I, if I think back to the politics of the 1830s and the debates over the national bank, right, if that's the range of debate you're having, that's pretty narrow. And, and there's a sense in which our debates today are, are that narrow. You think about the difference between a Republican spending bill and a Democratic spending bill. Often it's not much, right? It's 5% of, of the, the three or $4 trillion that we're talking about. But on the other hand, if you distill the, the parties down to uh, the essential commitments, you can say, well, there is really a, a big quarrel between them. No one can articulate it. The candidates aren't articulating it. But if you try to understand at the root of what the Republican Party stands for and the Democratic Party stands for, you can see you've got clashing views on, on human nature, on the role of government. These are questions that divide these parties. And yet, viewed from the perspective of our campaigns, you can't get two coherent sentences out of a candidate, right? There's no one's debating these things like the Federalist Papers against anti-Federalist essays. But, but we have this interesting combination, maybe the worst of both worlds, right? We're, we're agitated by the clash of big ideas that we sort of have a faint sense of, but we have the, all the pettiness of the small parties that, that has that corrupting partisan effect where you're, you're really rooting hard for your team. Well, definitely making the case for great ideas is more difficult, right? It's a, an onerous task, but it's a, a worthy task. It takes time. Uh, it takes thinking through your arguments. It takes thinking through your opponent's arguments. And it, it really is a, a more difficult pathway in order to achieve a majority. But I think that that whole process of making the case for great ideas, if it produces in the end a majority, it's more likely then to produce a consequence that leads you further down the road of what you're arguing for. Uh, whereas it's much easier to have a kind of bullet point attack on the other uh, in a small way uh, that may get you um, a, an immediate a majority, but it's not going to be a lasting one. So I think this is part of what he's suggesting here about the founding, right? That they were willing to take on that great challenge to make the case for great ideas to the American people, uh, something that just doesn't seem to be part of our politics any longer. Yeah. And so the progressive movement really had that vision 120 or so years ago. And, and achieve success by it, right? That they, they made big idea arguments first at the level of the, the philosophers and the uh, political writers. And those began to be translated into political slogans and political programs. And of course, there were events that helped spur that along. But I mean, the progressive movement made a case for a different account of the regime. And over the course of time, carried the point couldn't agree more that, and that took a, a whole bunch of work by John Dewey, by Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., by Herbert Crowley, and, and others, like you said, uh, philosophers who put forth ideas about uh, progressivism that challenged uh, uh, what had been the uh, prior status quo, which is a regime uh, of individualism, uh, if, if you're more critical of what happened prior, or the earlier lowercase r Republican regime. So uh, that's certainly not where we are, Matt, uh, with those uh, progressives. Uh, but 
you have to give them credit for the case that they made. And there's a certain greatness to it and intellectual honesty that's also present there, uh, even if you disagree with it. So anyway, uh, moving on, the, the next topic that Tocqueville takes up with regard to uh, parties is these are the weapons that parties employ. Two weapons, uh, the press and associations. So the party is trying to get the attention of the majority so that it can become the majority party. How does it use the newspaper? Well, it uses the newspaper through the means or mechanism of the freedom of the press. Tocqueville writes, if someone were to show me between complete independence and entire enslavement of thought, an intermediate position that I thought could hope to hold to, I would perhaps establish myself there. But who will discover that intermediate position? So in the United States, there is an opportunity for the press to express itself on a variety of different issues. And the press is a a mechanism used by the parties. Now, those mechanisms, that press can be used in a way that tends towards license on, on one side of the continuum. But if you were to shut it off because you wanted something more orderly or honest, you would threaten, Tocqueville argues, to move to the other direction of the continuum toward kind of a despotic silence. So democracy requires some level of freedom, some level of independence. The great question in the employment of the press is, will that freedom tend toward license or will, on the other side, uh, a break on freedom or a restraint on freedom move you towards uh, servitude? The parties must be open to the freedom of the press because they they see it as an avenue uh, to change opinion. But there's a very, very dangerous kind of line that they can tow uh, if they move toward a license that then kind of requires kind of a counterbalance. So freedom of the press in the United States has been a a good thing, uh, Tocqueville argues, because it gives each individual the opportunity to read various opinions, uh, to see whether or not they believe those opinions are true. And then he says, uh, to make the adoption of an opinion the matter of one's own choosing. So uh, you move from ignorance uh, to doubt, to reflection, and the free press, he argues, allows for these three states uh, of being. Now, one of the things that he's going to get into here is the tendency of democracy. The tendency of democracy will not be toward truth, but toward kind of the sensational. And I think we see that tendency at play or have seen that tendency at play in contemporary American politics. You would have argued, right, that over the course of American history, there were times where the freedom of the press has been more limited and times where it's been more open. And we seem to be moving into a period where there's a kind of closing off of that freedom of the press or a closing off of the freedom of expression. And the argument that is made by individuals who suggest that that's a good thing is look at the danger of what happens when Joe Sixpack can get on the Internet and put out a podcast like Democracy in America Today and look at the damage that's going to be done. It's not good. I mean, just think of think of what we've started here, um, <laughs> a movement of hundreds of souls. Um, no, but, you know, that you have very, uh, I'll put it this way, you, you have people who are card-carrying members of the ACLU who are now arguing against that freedom of expression. What do you make of that, Matt? 
Yeah, you know, it's part of this really interesting dynamic that he identifies in his day, hyper-decentralized world, right? Every small town has its own newspaper, and they're all partisan, right? They're, they're Democrat papers or they're Whig papers, and they're forthrightly partisan in a refreshing way. They're not pretending to be objective journalists. They're reporting the news they want to report. They're making the case for their party. They're, they're rallying the troops. They're, they're establishing and holding a party line. And, and what happens over the course of time is we have the kind of the professionalization of, of media, but then the rise of these new ways of communicating, of radio and the television and the internet. And, and we've had a back and forth between centralizing and decentralizing tendencies. So you think about the heyday of the three networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, right? They gave everybody their news and it was monochrome. It was the same news and there was not really any way to dissent from that. It was, it was center left. And then all of a sudden comes cable, right? And so cable allows for the democratization of television news. And then you have the end of the restrictions on, on radio. So the talk radio revolution, Rush Limbaugh and everybody that follows from that. And so you have this democratization. Now you've got new voices and you know, you've kind of allowed, particularly conservatives to, to bring a different perspective back. Now you're beginning to see a centralization again, right? All those small town newspapers are disappearing. Who survived? The New York Times, right? The legacy media, Washington Post, there's going to be a handful of newspapers. And, and now you've got an Amazon, you've got a, a Google that can use their clout to start to shut down some of that dissent. Well, one thing to be mindful of here, just on that point, is that Tocqueville's no uh, cheerleader of democracy. I think he gives it credit where credit is due. But here on this point of the freedom of the press, he, he realizes that that freedom can become license. Uh, that can be an extreme independence that tends towards anarchy. But he does point out the following. He writes, in a country where the dogma of the sovereignty of the people reigns openly, censorship is not only a danger, but also a great absurdity. So what's his logic? Well, if you trust people to be sovereign over society, you must recognize their capacity to choose among different opinions. To work against that would to be work against the principle that they ought to have sovereignty in the first place. And this is, by the way, I think the same logic that he applies to the question on political associations. Here in the United States, he writes, Americans associate for the goals of public security, of commerce and industry, of morality and religion. Right? The right to associate is a right because here, if you're going to grant sovereignty to the people, you want them to be able to come together. You want them to be able to discuss. Um, you want them to be able to gather into groups uh, and to make the case for one opinion or another. And that kind of outward um, activity of joining into associations rather than being dangerous for society is actually a good for society. Well, why? He says, in the country where associations are free, secret societies are unknown. In America, there are factious persons, but no conspirators. I think where he's, he's going with all this and you know, adding to the point about the freedom of the press as well is, is that you know, political life has to be able to express itself in people coming together around common ideas and acting upon those ideas. And if people can vote, they have to be able to vote as informed citizens and citizens who coordinate action together. And so it's really critical that 
you know, we don't end up in a situation where the only view that's available is the view that favors one party or one ideology. And the only groups that can come together are those that support one party or one ideology. You can have all the trappings of democracy in a context like that and miss the entire essence of it. Yeah, I mean, this is exactly it. Freedom of association, he writes, is a necessary guarantee against the tyranny of the majority. You have to have an outlet to be able to question the status quo, uh, the powers that be. You have to be able to begin to make the case through association, through press, uh, that a tendency is wrong, that an idea is wrong, that a policy is wrong. And if that's taken away because it's deemed dangerous, uh, then we're going to fully realize the dangers of that movement towards the tyranny of the majority that uh, becomes such a bigger item for Tocqueville uh, later uh, in this same uh, volume. So anyway, I, I want to move now to the adjacent reading. Uh, as has been mentioned, we try to have an adjacent reading from the history of political philosophy that aligns with uh, whatever Tocqueville is discussing uh, for that week's lesson. And we've moved now to Plato's Republic, uh, who has uh, some interesting things to say about democracy, especially when considered in light of Tocqueville's thought on parties, the sovereignty of the people, et cetera. So what I want to have us do is read from Plato's Republic, uh, book eight, uh, 562a through 568e, where Plato through Socrates talks about democracy and makes the suggestion that democracy leads toward tyranny. Come then, tell me, dear friend, how tyranny arises. That it is an outgrowth of democracy is fairly plain. Why is democracy an out? Why, excuse me, tyranny an outgrowth of democracy? Well, here uh, Socrates takes us through the dynamic of how you get from a democratic political community to a tyrannical one, and he suggests that when a democratic city is thirsty for liberty, which also could be defined as license, it, quote, gets bad cupbearers for its leaders and is intoxicated by drinking too deep of that unmixed wine. And then if its so-called governors are not extremely mild and gentle with it and do not dispense the liberty instantly, it chastises them and accuses them of being accursed oligarchs. So what He'll go on to say here in his description of the movement towards a more extreme or licentious form of democracy is the building up of, of probably best put in the phrase of an anarchic temper or temperament, an anarchic way of seeing the world or orientation of seeing the world where all standards are kind of set aside. And when um, things that used to be considered right and wrong, up and down, uh, are turned upside down. Uh, where uh, students take the part of teachers and, and then teachers are enslaved uh, to their students, uh, where um, uh, those who should be leaders uh, are, um, are led by the multitude uh, rather than leading it. Uh, a variety of different conversions of society whereby uh, standards uh, are undone. And, and what this eventually produces, uh, uh, Plato will argue uh, through Socrates, is a democracy that is made up of three classes. One class, which is kind of the purveyor of this license and of this anarchic temper. Uh, second class, uh, which is what he calls the capitalistic class, which kind of continues to be productive within the democracy. 
and the third class, which is composed of the people. So you have the, the dominant class that is projecting license, uh, and um, it does so, uh, uh, Socrates argues, through speeches and the way that it transacts business, and uh, all of others kind of swarm around it and, and keep it buzzing, and it tolerates no dissent, Socrates tells us. The capitalistic class that is kind of still holding on to some level of, of standards, and the third class, the people. And what's going to happen over time is that class that uh, is promoting license is going to uh, bring uh, under its wings uh, the people, and the people in turn will select a, a leader, uh, a tyrant, uh, to protect it, uh, to protect its ability uh, to act licentiously and who will make the case uh, for uh, its stead in terms of the distribution of wealth and, and so on uh, in society. So who comes under attack within this regime? It's, it's the capitalist or third class within the regime who are over and over uh, deemed uh, oligarchic uh, and begin to think of themselves as such and lose um, their kind of grip upon uh, society until a license uh, leads to the eventual uh, succession of the tyrant. So it's really interesting here, right? If we, if we take uh, Plato's suggestion about democracy tending towards tyranny here in the Republic and we compare it uh, to uh, Tocqueville's discussion of the government of democracy in America, Tocqueville questions, this is really a, the big question throughout democracy in America, and that is, will this democratic revolution produce despotism or the movement to something like tyranny, or will it produce a healthy republicanism? So for Tocqueville, the question still remains unanswered, and, and there will be a way to divert or chart the power, the political power of the movement towards democracy to a, a better outcome. But for Plato, the cycle goes from democracy to tyranny. So what do you make of their two accountings of where democracy tends or might tend, uh, particularly about how it applies to contemporary American democracy? You know, what's interesting, this is where the in America really matters in democracy in America, because as the Tocqueville works through, you know, why in the United States, some of these worst tendencies haven't emerged, he talks about some particular qualities of America's history, America's culture, and really most importantly, America's religion and, and the role that Christianity plays. He says that where democracy is weak, religion is strong. And he points out ways that that Christianity sort of buttresses uh, democratic societies by pushing back on this tendency toward license. Christianity gives you that moral framework to go back to your discussion of several weeks ago, right? You're, you're not morally independent. You're morally dependent. You've, you've got a way of life, a certain kind of order. And so the question is what happens when those that hold on to that and those that are making the case for a liberty that's not licensed and an ordered liberty, a liberty within the boundaries that actually define human flourishing, what happens when that position is dismissed as intolerant, right? This is the equivalent of what, of what Plato's talking about. It's, it's those orderly business folks who keep on getting up early and doing honest work 
and and they're attacked because they're oligarchs. All they're trying to do is just mind their own business, do their own thing. But they're framed as oligarchs by those who want to be lazy, who who want to uh, uphold the the life of license and say, yeah, this person's a, a standing rebuke to us because he's living this orderly life and we just want to party and we want to do our own thing. And so you have a kind of a parallel, right? In, in the Christian era, now you have the, the the parallel to that as the Christianity that that holds back the the worst elements of democracy begins to to fade begins to to weaken in the united states and then become a target right of uh, and and be relabeled as as just a intolerant holding on to a standard that's not really there that's when you begin to worry about the the kind of direction that plato's uh, describing so i think i think what took those rightly done is seeing that there are ways to at least keep this decline to tyranny at bay, right? There are institutions, there are cultural forms and, and religion that, that can hold that back. But when those things give way, do you find yourself in the middle of, of a platonic dystopia? Yeah. And one of the great temptations that I think what we've also seen more recently in American politics is to see the success of that being done uh, against the regime so that you take on the same methods or you try to create majorities the same way. Right. Uh, you, you know, get all the rabble rousers together and, and you try to uh, suggest things that uh, aren't necessarily uh, good for the uh, stability of the regime and it looking back and realizing what it ought to conserve and moving forward. But you're just trying to push buttons any way you can in order to get a group of people swarming around you uh, so that that swarm can create your own majority to counter the one uh, that's present. And I think this is part of the, the difficulty of the assessment of uh, the Trump administration, right? In part, you know, there you could defend many an activity uh, suggesting, um, you know, good conservatism at play and nominating the right people for the court and so on, right? Kind of a general conservatism that was present in policy decisions. But then there's also this tendency in the style of that administration uh, to look much more like that platonic dystopia that you just mentioned uh, than one that is resembling uh, Washington's administration in the late 18th century. Yeah, so the challenge I think for us today is to to seek Republican ends by Republican means. And I think we've been talking about that really as long as we've been doing this podcast. This is This is one of the places where we're very weak today. We want the quick win and... We see, look, if you want to build up the social media following, you want to get the, the clickbait story, right, that, that goes viral, um, there's a certain way to do that. And that's the media environment that we live in. To, to link it to the media question we were talking about earlier, that's the media environment in which we live. And so, uh, you know, the hyperpartisan tendency is really baked into right now how the media works, right? You, the only way to, to make money is to get those clicks. The only way to get those clicks is to be sensational, partisan. And so it, it kind of adds to the trouble. And meanwhile, the further layer that we've also discussed a bit, I don't have to ever encounter an opinion I don't like because I can find my corner of the internet and, and park myself there and enjoy that. And, and the only evidence I'll ever have of the other side existing is when we all attack whenever some outrage has occurred. And we all you know, take whatever that stray tweet was and we go after it hard. 
But other than that, I don't have to ever engage the argument. I don't have to engage the reason. I don't have to find out the, the second tweet that followed that up that actually clarified that made the whole thing a tempest in a teapot. I don't do any of that because I can just isolate myself in my little corner and, and reinforce all my preconceived notions about those people over there. All right. Well, with that in mind, let's let's turn our attention to more recent headlines. And you know, we've talked about the power sharing agreement that was struck this last week, and uh, the sort of state of the parties that's embedded in that. And I think there's a couple of features of our current political situation that are worth developing a little bit in light of what the Tocquevilles said here. Uh, we have had this series of very close elections and unstable majorities. And you know, if if you're political consciousness stretches back only as far as say 2000 or so, essentially every election has been close, presidential election, or if it hasn't been, it's been followed rapidly by a reversal of fortunes, right? So President Obama won pretty big victories both times, but but two years later, Republicans came storming back in congressional elections. So you have these close elections most of the time, and even when you don't have that, you have these unstable majorities and so we have a, a plainly closely divided electorate, right? So that, that's one sort of fact that we're dealing with. And then the second one, which we've just been discussing, is the hyperpartisan quality of that. So, you know, almost seems to cut in a different direction because you'd think if, if the party division is very narrow, then you would expect the parties to be fighting for the middle, right? Because you know that it's a fine margin between your victory and your defeat. And so you're all fighting for that five or 10% of the people in the middle that make the difference every, every time there's an election. But it hasn't really worked out that way. Rather than fighting for the middle, we fight to hold down our base, right? And, and, we, and we assume that the people in the middle are gonna have to eventually choose one side or the other, but, but we haven't actually had the competition you would expect in a closely divided electoral system for the kind of moderate person in the middle that, that might temper the extremism of, of one party or another. So. With, with all this as, as, as background, I want to look at these two features and some articles that were written this last week that kind of help us to think about this a little bit further. Interesting piece by uh, Chuck DeVore, who's a former assemblyman in, in California, now running a think tank in Texas, who's writing at The Federalist, and noticing just how unstable uh, the Democratic majority is in both the Senate and the House. And obviously, 50-50 in the Senate, very, very close in the House as well. And he goes back into some historical comparison and looks at 2001, where you had that previous 50-50 division, 2009, where you had a substantial Democratic majority in the Senate, but right on that tipping point of a filibuster-proof majority. And so a different kind of dynamic there, but, but still an important move, whether you had 59 votes or 60 votes on your, on your Democratic side. And, and he looks at kind of the dynamic of the politics there and argues that this Congress even though Democrats seem determined to try to push through what they can, is likely to be very unproductive. That they'll, they'll get a few bills through, especially early on, as often you do in the early days of an administration. But as time goes forward, and as we get closer to the midterm elections in particular, we're going to see that individuals are going to have to start taking new political calculations in mind. Right? So some of those seats in the House, for example, are in districts that President Trump won either in 2016 or in 2020, or perhaps both, right? Where, where there's enough of a political divide that you can't be 
hardline progressive, right? AOC over the cliff kind of voter in the House and then carry that district in 2022. So his expectation is that this Congress is going to be relatively unproductive. And then in consequence of that, picking up on our theme we were looking at last time, we should expect to see lots more of the executive order style presidency that we've seen so far. You know, we're, we're 25 executive orders in through uh, eight or nine days of the Biden presidency. And DeVore's argument is expect to see more of that in the days to come because this fragile Democratic majority is likely to break down before too long and lead to a legislative gridlock that, you know, in the past we would have said, well, that's it, right? We're stuck. But in the last few decades, that hasn't been the end, right? When you're stuck on the legislative branch, the executive branch seems willing to to step in. Well, it reminds me of Federalist Paper number 51, where Madison's discussing how to protect against you know one department infringing upon the rights of another and talks about this idea of ambition counteracting ambition as a, as a counterweight to tyranny. And here that seems to have gone by the wayside in the partisan age that we live in because it's the partisan ideology more than the commitment to one's office that rules uh, one's use of, of, of one's authority, whether it's legislative, adjudicative, or uh, executive. And um, so it, it seems to me that what, what we see have, has substituted itself for the idea of ambition, counteracting ambition, right? Someone being ambitious uh, for uh, the branch of government they serve, counteracting the other branch. You have an election counteracting an election. And um, that, that, that might work, as you've mentioned, over the last 20 years uh, in that you know, it seems to be kind of a constant flux between one party or another uh, winning an election. But it, it really hasn't toned down either side. Uh, it hasn't really created a Republican spirit, and it just seems to set up kind of the, the next domino to fall uh, is if in 2022 the Republicans win big in the Congress, uh, then all of these little shortcuts that have been made uh, in, um, in perhaps ending the filibuster or kind of you know working through bills that don't have any support from the other party, they'll be employed by the Republicans. If the Republicans win in 2024, can we expect that the next Republican president will have 50 executive orders their first week of office? So it really takes you down a path where, yeah, there's, there's some kind of balance there or, or counteraction there, but it seems more and more the pendulum is swinging in a wider direction left and right and, and, and threatens to take us you know, very off course. Yeah, just keep your head spinning. Another piece this week, Robert Reich, former labor secretary under President Clinton, writing at The Guardian, was saying, look, essentially Democrats, you don't need Republican votes. You can push through your bills. You can do your thing. You don't need to negotiate. Right? Set aside all that talk, that happy talk about doing things together and unity and all the rest. They're not going to want to unify with you on your agenda. So don't worry about it. You've got the votes and push through the biggest, boldest agenda that, that you possibly can. He concludes the piece, the multiple crises engulfing America are huge. The window of opportunity for addressing them is small. If ever there was a time for boldness, it is now, right? So you've got a, the 
barest of majorities, right? Only a majority when Kamala Harris is in the building. And yet do what you can to push it whatever through as fast as you can. Yeah, and I think dangerously it just makes the stakes of every election here on out, you know, that much greater, uh, that much sky is falling in, this is do or die, this is the election to end all elections. And that uh, that sequence continues as well as we move forward. Yeah, which just to layer on one more point on this. So uh, you've all have been writing at National Review on the particular question of the COVID relief bill says that this kind of hyperpartisan era in which we live is is causing Democrats to, to miscalculate their situation and to unnecessarily push forward in a partisan way when they could actually get a, a good bill on their own terms with some bipartisan support if they were willing to take the time. But they don't believe that, right? So the, you know, the 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 sort of caricature position of the recalcitrant Republican who wants to say no to everything and therefore won't won't cooperate, that they, they've bought into that. And so even though you had 10 Republican senators proposing a COVID relief bill earlier in the week, forget about it, right? They're not serious, they're not sincere, or it's not enough, whatever the excuse might be. And so you just go down this path. When you have a situation, as he points out, you've actually had five bipartisan bills in the last 12 months on this issue. So it has been done, right? It has been done in a, in a time when you're running a presidential election, where you have a polarizing president, right? Not exactly the conditions you would expect to see bipartisanship begin to emerge, but you actually had that on this, on this one issue area, at least. And yet you're abandoning it essentially before you've begun, right? No, no negotiations, as we mentioned already today, the first votes toward approving this bill. Last piece of this is the way that parties are, are maybe, I'd say, policing their own and you know, noticing over the last week, a couple of interesting developments on this front on the Republican side in particular. So one of the discussions earlier in the week was whether Liz Cheney would be removed from her position as a leader. And there was the expectation by, by many that she would be. A lot of people were upset with her vote to impeach President Trump and predicted that you know, that was going to be something that would essentially bring about her political downfall. Uh, Matt Gates, Florida representative, uh, strong Trump supporter, had even been in Wyoming at, a, at an anti-Cheney rally, kind of stirring up the crowd and, and, and talking a lot about how this was going to be the end uh, for someone like herself. Interestingly, then, the vote after House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy spoke strongly in her favor was 145 for Cheney remaining in her position, only 61 against. So, you know, you have this clearly a grassroots, right? Fired up grassroots, people mad about Liz Cheney. Whether that's a majority of her constituents or not, we'll, we'll find out maybe in, in 2022. Then you also have a House Republican caucus, which voting secret ballot, right? So no one, no one knows who's voting for what. Surprisingly, strongly, affirms her position within that caucus, right? Meanwhile, on the Senate side, you have Ben Sass, who was one of the five senators who didn't vote that a post-presidency impeachment trial was unconstitutional, who's apparently about to be censured by his 
own party back in Nebraska. Nebraska Republican Party is is preparing a resolution of censure. So there's there's this ongoing question I think within the Republican Party about you know what it means to be a loyal Republican, and and these are interesting matters because you know the way you usually think about this is well we've got the rhino right the rhino who's who's really a proto-progressive, right? who, who doesn't really hold the line when it comes to social issues or actually really isn't really against taxing and spending, you know, who's just sort of a squish, you know, ideologically. And that's not really what you have, right? With Ben Sass in particular, his voting record is, is quite conservative, um, but he's been critical of, of President Trump from even before he was president all the way through the end. So there's something happening here in terms of setting some party orthodoxy not so much around the principles of, of the party or the party platform, but around how you think about President Trump, how you treat President Trump, what you think about impeachment, and all these kinds of questions. And it'll be interesting to see how it, it all shakes out. And of course, there's still plenty of talk about primary challengers and upcoming elections. But I think we're seeing another element of this hyperpartisanship is if you're not hyperpartisan enough, right, does that, does that put you in jeopardy? of being on the wrong side of at least the vocal minority, if not the majority of your fellow partisans. Well, I don't know if Trump should be a litmus test for Republican Party orthodoxy, but back to Senator Sass, you know, if you appear on The View, that might be a disqualifier <laughs> for me. That's it. I, yeah, well, I mean, going back to what Tocqueville said, you know, you want a great party where people are attached to ideas and, and not to men. And I think that the idea that the ruling class in this country has taken the country in the wrong direction is a very good idea. I think a very intelligent people, including our mentor, Angelo Cotavilla, have talked about just what that means. And I think that there is a great argument to be made against ruling class politics and ruling class rule. And you hope, or I hope, that the the thing that counters ruling class rule that's put forward by the Republican Party and its standard bearers are actually lowercase r, Republican principles and, and policies. And I, I think that if that's the litmus test, then that's a good litmus test. And there ought to be litmus tests, right? As I was fond of saying when I was involved in politics, you know, it's a party, right? It, it's not the arc. You don't have to take two of everything. And I think that's that's important, right? There are some principles that unite a party together, uh, and I think that those principles, uh, when um, when put forward by the Republican Party and counter to the ruling class, uh, will lead the Republican Party to some great victories uh, here in the future. Uh, but to, to believe that Donald Trump is the only person that can make the case against the ruling class is is really a, a sorry opinion and one that's not true. Uh, we, we definitely need someone moving forward who can do that in a much better way, a much lowercase r Republican fashion than did Donald Trump. All right. Well, with that, we're going to turn our attention to the grade book. So next Friday is Abraham Lincoln's 212th birthday. Uh, now, he got some bad news recently when the San Francisco school board decided to drop his name from Abraham Lincoln High School, uh, which, you know, was one of the leading feathers in his cap, I know. One of the things that, you know, his, his descendants always bragged about was that San Francisco High School. So, um, nevertheless, it's gone. According to a piece in The Atlantic, um, they deliberated for all of five seconds before making that decision. And 
he wasn't alone, right? So George Washington, Paul Revere, Robert Louis Stevenson, even Dianne Feinstein, uh, 44 schools in all named for individuals, lost those names and they weren't replaced. So they didn't have a, a, a new list ready, but they, they wanted to remove these names while they worked on that. And that kind of gives us an opening here. So we're going to, rather than individual names, since there's 44 schools, that might take a little longer than we have here. Uh, we're going to talk about approaches to naming and grade some of these approaches that are available that might help just to cool the political waters a little bit, right? Make it so, I think the, the key here is you don't have to do this again five years down the road, right? 10 years down the road. You, you know, you want to you wanna get this right once and for all. So, so here's some options, Dave, to consider. Grade them as, as sort of recommendations as, you know, you're, you're a consultant, right? You're out there on the left coast. You're a consultant for the San Francisco School Board. Grade these as, as possible approaches to getting the name thing right this time around. All right, number one, numbers, right? New York style numbers, PS 112, PS 72, right? Now, a lot of the New York ones over the years have gotten names to go along with that, but you can just go right back to the classic, just give it a number and, and be done with it. What do you think? Well, numbers can be offensive. I mean, some numbers, you know, say the wrong thing. No, I'm just kidding. Numbers don't do that. But um, but yeah, the problem I have with numbers is just kind of going back to some nightmares, uh, rem- remembering when I was a kid where I like forget my bus number because they'd change it. And yeah. I lived about six miles away from the school. So you get on bus two, like you end up in a completely different place good. than home. So yeah, uh, you, now you have to remember the, the PS112 in addition to bus number three. It's a lot of numbers there for, for little kids to worry with. So I, I'd say uh, I'd give the numbers a C. Yeah. I, I'm thinking about, you know, the, the merchandise too, and, you know, the football uniforms, you know, the PS 111 Tigers, just the number on the front of the shirt, the number on the back, you know, it, it, a lot of confusion I think could, could enter in there. It's got some Orwellian um, kind of like, uh, kind of exactness to it, right? It just kind of, yeah. it, it tends us in that direction. So it's kind of dystopian. Yeah, you could do barcodes, right? Just to go full, full yep. fledged in that direction. So, all right. Yeah, I think it's C's fair. I'll, I'll get a C as well. All right, second option, name them after the streets they're on, right? That That's fairly neutral, right? I remember we both lived in Exeter, New Hampshire for some years and they had two schools there that were both named after the street they were on, Main Street School and then Lincoln Street School. Now, of course, I guess we see the problem, right? Because we're right back to Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln Street, if you got a problematic street, now you have a problematic school. So what do you think about that as an option, Dave? I like that option. I, I went to Elm Street School in Lakeport. Uh, we had three elementary schools in Laconia, uh, that being one. You had Pleasant Street and Woodland Heights. It's good. You know, you were an Elm Street, you know, tiger. And so I, I'd give that a, I think a B, I think that's a, but you are going to run into that problem. And once again, you know, what about people who don't like Elm trees? You know, right. what, what do you do there? Right. I've had a bad experience with an Elm at some point. You rode your bike into one or something like that, or like, a, you know, something fell off one and hit you. And that's, there's always room for offense. Yeah. There's, there's trouble there. And, and, you know, we've seen, there is definitely, some bad blood between the city and the school board. The city's suing the school board, not over names, but over COVID, right? They want to reopen the schools and the school board won't reopen the schools. So 
my point is, I'm not sure the city is going to cooperate in renaming those streets, right? If you have some problematic street names, are they going to cooperate in fixing that as a step toward making sure that the school names are fixed as well? Okay, third option. This is maybe the most obvious one, although there's not quite enough to do the whole job, but just name them after those school board members, right? I mean, obviously, these people are paragons of virtue. Uh, you can't be judging historical figures with the precision that they have without being an exemplary citizen yourself. So that seems like a safe bet. Name them after there's eight people on the school board, and maybe they can get some of their friends or former school board members to add to the number. But you know that that's that's safe, right? That that that's a sort of a problematic proof solution to the problem. That's safe for now, but you have to have your sandblaster always ready because ten years from now, those very same school board members are probably not on the right historical track toward truth and justice. So there's something they said. There's a they just didn't go far enough, uh, and then you've got to sandblast it again and put the new school board member on. I mean, I guess. You know, if you're working within decade periods, that's one thing, but you're going to have a lot of name changes if you use history as a barometer of truth. Yeah. Okay. I think you've convinced me. I'm going to have to give that one a C minus. All right. I got one more for you. And I think this, this might be the winner. So we haven't really found anything that's, that's great just yet. Let me try this out. So random name generator. Find a website, babynames.com has a tool that allows you to generate random names. Uh, you can choose whether you want female name, male name, gender neutral. Obviously, we'll do gender neutral here. You know, We don't know just how problematic other things could be down the road. So gender neutral. And then you can kind of choose different personalities. They've got like stylish, traditional, wild. So I did a few of these just to give you kind of a flavor of it. And I think you're gonna like this, Dave. So the first one I got, which was a stylish, was Villa. Piccolo, Villa Piccolo. All right. Then I got a traditional for you, and this is very, very traditional. Uh, Keeson Ridley, Keeson Ridley. And then the Wild, which you won't even believe. You're going to say, no, come on, you're making this up because it's too perfect. I think it captures San Francisco perfectly. The name Pacific Malice, Pacific Malice. Okay. So what do you think? I live in Pasadena, which is fairly posh. There's a lot of money here. So there are a lot of Case and Ridleys uh, who are walking uh, Colorado Boulevard and, and going into restaurants called Villa Piccolo. Uh, and certainly the traffic uh, on the 210 would be like a Pacific malice. Uh, but uh, I, you know, I, I kind of have a place in my heart for this. Uh, as the father, I'm, I'm called the father by my daughter, Eliza, of our dog, uh, whose name is... Tenny, but then has been renamed Tenny Chocolate Cinnamon Kardashian Corbin or something like that. So um, <laughs> I'm afraid that if this babynames.com gets into Eliza's hands, um, uh, every everything in our house will be named by it. But uh, there's a certain you know uh, fun to that, and, and I think that you know it's all random. So and uh, you want a stylish city, you don't have a whole bunch of Villa Piccolos. Um, traditional cities, you know, uh, I like it. I, I I'll, I'll give it an A minus. It's it's it, it, it might work. All right. We always wrap up the show with the Tocqueville's crystal ball. And we've already kind of previewed this one a little bit from last week. Last week, it was Puxatani Phil, we were predicting. And, um, you know, you said he would see his shadow and consign those of us in the Northeast to six more weeks of winter. I looked at the forecast. I said, there's no way it's going to snow. 
And then after the snow comes clouds. So how could he possibly see his shadow? And yet somehow they, they claim he did. Well, my record now, I have a winning record for 2021. I have turned right. the corner four and three. What are you? Ooh, I don't know. We haven't really been keeping track of that as much this time around. Okay. So um, right. might be two and five though. I think, okay. I think if I were to think back over it, so. I want to build upon that, that winning record uh, for this week. So we have the Super Bowl, right? And, and uh, what's your pick, Matt, on the Super Bowl? Yeah, we have the Chiefs favored by three points over under of 56 and a half. Uh, I don't think it's going to be as high scoring a game as that. I, I think this is going to be one of those games where they kind of feel each other out a little bit. It's kind of you know slow start. Um, I think Chiefs go ahead. I think Brady tries to come back, doesn't quite make it. I think the Chiefs win like 27-23. So I'm going to take the Chiefs covering the points and the under. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that there will be uh, fewer points scored earlier. I, I, I like that. I think that that uh, Tampa Bay defensive line uh, will be able to get a rush uh, on Mahomes. So he may have a big play here or there, but I think you probably have a low scoring, you know, seven to seven, 10, 10 game at halftime. And um, I, I think that it'll, you know, come down uh, to the wire. I think uh, most of Brady's games have been close uh, in the past. Uh, I think this, this one will be too. Uh, so I, I, I think that um, the, they'll get within that, that three-point margin, but I just believe the Chiefs will have enough to, to win it at the end. A um, uh, problem for Brady is the defensive coordinator on the Chiefs side, Spagnola, tends, has his number, and um, he's, he's probably not looking forward to uh, four-person fronts uh, with seven people drop back in zone uh, and uh, a whole bunch of that that's kind of uh, hurt him in the past. Those few and I emphasize few times the Patriots have lost Super Bowls. Yeah, been been there, done that, and doesn't want to see that all over again. My my uh, my exact prediction is Chiefs twenty four, Bucks twenty three. Chiefs twenty four, Bucks twenty three. All right, I said twenty seven, twenty three. So we will mark that down, and we will see uh, next week who has bragging rights if either of us um, after Super Bowl Sunday. Well, thank you for listening. As always. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget we're on Instagram at democracy in America today. And you can also contact us by email at democracy in America today at gmail.com. Look forward to talking to you next week.